Hello and welcome to a special edition of PM and tonight's coverage of the Labor government's first federal budget. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yuggera people. It's a federal budget for the times. In the face of global uncertainty and rising stress over surging inflation and spiralling interest rates, Treasurer Jim Chalmers has delivered an economic blueprint balancing financial restraint with targeted household relief. Still saddled with a looming trillion-dollar debt bill, Dr Chalmers is now embarking on long-awaited budget repair, with more than $28 billion identified in savings over the next four years. The headline figures, at least on the deficit front, confirm positive progress in the first five months of the Albanese government, but much of it under the watch of the previous coalition government. Dr Chalmers can no longer blame Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg for the economy he's inherited and he's been on his feet delivering his first budget speech, declaring there's less debt and more to show for it. Speaker, Australians know that a complex combination of challenges at home and abroad is pushing up the cost of living. They know that governments can't make inflation disappear overnight. And they don't need us taking steps that would just make the problem worse by putting even more pressure on prices and making the independent Reserve Bank's job even harder. Instead, they need us to be responsible, reasonable and targeted with policies that are affordable, fair and future-focused, delivering a long-term economic dividend. And that's what this budget does with a five-point plan for cost-of-living relief. Cheaper childcare, expanding paid parental leave, cheaper medicines, more affordable housing and getting wages moving again. Treasurer Jim Chalmers speaking a short while ago. The budget has deficit almost halved to just under $37 billion this financial year, though wages growth is on track to stagnate over the next year and will be unable to keep up with inflation. But with household consumption set to fall as the economy slows, the big challenge for Jim Chalmers is to build a reputation as a strong economic manager in troubled times without pushing the button for budget austerity. Here's the ABC's senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. For Jim Chalmers, this budget has been all about managing expectations. No one's missed his constant theme of global economic storm clouds in recent days and weeks. Russia's war in Ukraine, the rapid slowdown in China, surging inflation and rising interest rates that could plunge the United States and Europe into a deep recession that Australia might only just avoid. Dr Chalmers and Finance Minister Katie Gallagher have crafted a mainly no-frills, no-surprises budget that's all about responsible economic management, beginning the massive task of budget repair at a time when the rising cost of living is causing severe household distress. But on that front, there's $7.5 billion in targeted handouts, cheaper childcare, better paid parental leave, cheaper medicines, more affordable housing and a national housing accord to build a million well-located homes over five years from 2024. And good news about the deficit halving this financial year to $36.9 billion before rising again over the forecast. An inflation to peak at 7.75% 
before falling to 3.5% in 2023-24. GDP is expected to moderate to 3.25% this year, but will halve to 1.5% next year as the economy slows and the jobless rate rises to 4.5%. Also, there's a $100 billion lifeline of tax revenue from commodity exports. But Jim Chalmers says that can't be relied upon, with demand from China likely to decline. But it's wages growth that remains the big worry. It's expected to flatline at 3.75% over the next few years, falling to 3.25% in 2024-25. And that means wages will fail to keep up with inflation for longer than expected. And slower wages means less tax revenue into Treasury coffers. Gross government debt, much of it built up during the pandemic, will be trimmed due to spending restraint. But it's still on track to be an eye-watering $1.1 trillion by 2025, expected to only stabilise by 2033 at almost 47% of GDP, underscoring the urgency for budget repair with $28.5 billion of improvements over the next four years. On the surface, it's a grim outlook full of variables in an uncertain world, especially as debt servicing costs spiral. And Warren Hogan, economic advisor to Judo Bank, says the pressure is now on for Jim Chalmers to deliver in next year's budget. Act one of a two-act play where I think the really big decisions have to be made. It's all about cleaning up the books, putting in some pretty modest election commitments into place, And then, of course, the main task for the government with this budget is to not make the RBA's job any harder with the current inflation problem. And on all three counts, they seem to have done a pretty good job. So in some ways, do you think this was pretty much a a dress rehearsal for a, a tougher budget? Well, it's a dress rehearsal, a laying out of the lie of the land for the next budget and to start a conversation. We now see a budget for our government that is in deterioration over the medium term, both spending and taxation rising, but not meeting, and hence a structural budget deficit, 40, 50 billion a year. And really, that's the big question for the May budget next year is how do we get rid of that deficit if indeed we want to, and do we do that through higher taxes or lower spending? When you look at what we've been through, when you consider the pandemic, rising interest rates, surging inflation, is this very much a budget for the times? Look, I think it is. I'd call it a mini budget, though. What it really is, is achieving some Uh, some of the normal things that you would see when you get a change of government and you get a big shift in the economic operating environment, and that is resetting the books. And that had to be done. Why wait to May? But the question is, why call it a budget, when really it is just a resetting of the books in a couple of modest policy changes, but it is inappropriate in the sense that it's doing nothing to deal with these long-term challenges. But I think the government's quite clear that that's for next year. Is Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese at the point now where they have to stop blaming the previous coalition government for what they've inherited? Totally. They've now laid out their set of priorities, parameters. They've redone uh, the books um, to reflect their priorities. Um, And of course, it's now their set of forecasts. So yes, there's no more blaming of others. And of course, we now have seven months where I think there'll be quite a debate in this country about what to do about our long-term budget challenge. The big forecasts seem positive, the deficit halving this year, debt trimming back, but do you believe these forecasts? 
To the extent that what we're going to get for this year and next, I think it's it's fine. We've had a huge windfall in the form of higher commodity prices. And of course, this has happened at a time when the Australian dollar has been quite soft against the US dollar. So we've seen this before around the commodity boom of 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, We're also reaping the benefit of the previous government strategy of growing the economy to repair the budget. And we're seeing that through higher revenues in terms of income taxes and so forth. So, look, the forecasts um, for the budget in the, in the year, next year or so are fine. The forecasts for the economy, which I think um, are fine as well, but they are what I'd call optimistic or optimal. That is, we're going to see this inflation problem dealt with and inflation back under control with only a modest slowdown in economic activity, a very small rise in unemployment, And I assume the implication is only a very small rise in interest rates. And I think that is optimistic uh, and desirable, but I think there's a lot of risk around it. Jim Chalmers has been saying that we can't keep relying on resources demand from China uh, to keep saving the day. Is that accurate or do you believe that a collapse in China might be imminent and could cause even bigger problems for this budget? Look, I'm, I'm very worried about where China's going at its core from an economic point of view, but to some extent politically. And I think our, our conservative approach to forecasting the price of iron ore and coal has suited us well. But the result is we keep getting all these upside surprises. And yes, maybe it does bail us out. And yes, it probably has made our senior officials and, and, and political leaders not tough enough on the budget. So a conservative budget that's all about strong economic management, but what hard decisions would you have liked to have seen in this budget? Look, the big issue for me is that the government has now pointed out a structural deficit. They've pointed out increasing spending requirements. And of course, if we want to have a balanced budget at any stage, the need to either increase taxes or cut spending. And the reality is they've done neither. They've done nothing even tokenistically on either front. So I think, you know, they pointed out a problem, but not done anything to address that problem. And they seem to think it's okay to wait seven months. Now, for me, this actually reveals their hand. And that is that I think they would prefer to see a big, bigger increase in taxes than spending cuts being part of the solution to the current long-term fiscal challenge. Economist Warren Hogan in the budget lockup with the ABC's senior business correspondent Peter Ryan. This is PM. I'm Rachel Mealy. Ahead, a new wealthy Prime Minister for the United Kingdom. Can Rishi Sunak connect with ordinary British voters at a time of economic turmoil? If the economy continues to be difficult, if external events play against Sunak, then of course we might well be back into a kind of more a psychodrama of the kind that we've had for the last six months uh, all over again, but probably more likely a general election. When health insurer Medibank revealed last week that its customers' data had been stolen, it also said it expected the number of people affected to be more than initially thought. Today, it confirmed that to be true, telling customers of its main brand that they too have had their secret information exposed. The company says it's a distressing development, but experts say it was predictable and companies need to store less information about us. Mary Lloyd reports. Not only have customers of Medibank Private had their personal details seized by hackers, they've also had information about their health claims stolen. 
David Vale, chair of the Australian Privacy Foundation, said hearing the news was distressing. I had a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. It confirmed the fears and expectation that what we'd seen last week might be the tip of an iceberg. When Medibank first announced it had been hacked, it said a criminal group had extracted information about customers with AHM, which it touts as affordable health cover. International students holding its health policies were also told they were affected. Medibank has now been given a new sample of the stolen data by the criminal or criminals, confirming that customers with its main brand have also been affected. The company says the federal police are investigating the matter. We need to recognise that you can't actually fix some of these things once they've happened. There's a serious failure to acknowledge that there's not much after the horse has bolted that you can do. He thinks that part of the problem is companies are storing too much data. There's this idea that more is better. Collect it all, store it all, keep it all for as long as you like. And that makes sense if there's no cost, if there's no risk. But for a long time, it's been evident that the age of being able to promise anyone we can keep your data safe is over. Rachel Falk, CEO of the Cybersecurity Research Centre, says data thieves would now look for ways to gain from the information they've stolen. They could send emails purporting to be from Medibank, seeking uh, further password updates or asking for further information from them or credit card details. She recommends all Medibank customers stay vigilant. Be alive for strange emails that ask you to update your payment details. Medibank says it still doesn't know how many customers are impacted. Joe Stewart Rattray is Director of Information Security and Technology Assurance with BRM Advisory. She says the onus is on companies to only keep the data they really need. Information becomes toxic over time. So therefore, we need to make sure that we don't have it for any longer than we need to. If you come home to discover that your house has been burgled, you can very easily see that your mother's pearls have been stolen. Why is it so hard for companies to work out which aspects of their customers' data has been stolen? We're talking about incredibly large systems with incredibly large databases. So there's actually quite a lot of work to be done to investigate this kind of breach. Your mother has one set of beautiful pearls. She doesn't have several million sets of pearls. So the more that she has, the less likely it is that she's going to know immediately that there's one particular string of pearls that's missing. Should companies be required to be able to tell what data has been breached? My great concern is that we don't move into a knee-jerk reaction and put so much legislation in place around some of these breaches that it makes it almost impossible for, for us to do our jobs as security professionals. Security has to be something that is in, enshrined into the day-to-day practices of organisations and that every individual in that organisation understands their rights, roles and responsibilities in relation to the security of the information that they are creating, handling storing, transmitting. Is this a growing problem? There seem to be so many of these breaches of late. I think it is a growing problem. I think the thing is that we are handling and creating more and more data all the time. This is only going to grow. The more data that we collect, the more interesting we become to those people who want to harvest it and make money from it. Cybersecurity expert Joe Stewart-Ratray ending Mary Lloyd's report. 
More than 300 homes have been flooded in the rural town of Moree in northern New South Wales and scores of people have been evacuated from the flood zone. The deluge has also dealt a major blow to the region's crops, which are a vital livelihood for the region. John Daly reports. The aerial view of the New South Wales town of Moree is a confronting sight for Mayor Mark Johnson. It's distressing as a leader. It's become quite emotional to see the damage, not only physically to the town, but how it will impact our community. Um, so, yeah, we're hurting. There's absolutely no doubt. How many homes have been affected by this flood event? We're estimating about 300 uh, homes and businesses. If it had made the 1955 level at 10.87, it would have gone up to 800. So between three and 400, we think, at this stage. There's more than 100 flood warnings active across the state. Residents in parts of Moree, Gunnedah and Narrabri remain under evacuation orders in the state's north, as are residents in the southern town of Moama on the Victorian border. In Moree, some clean-up has begun as waters recede from the Mihai River, but many areas remain flooded and the roads are badly damaged. Mark Johnson says recovery is slow. And it's taking a long, long time to, to go down, and I guess that's because it's got so much water behind it. The recovery process has certainly been handicapped by the way the, the flood has, has reacted. Tim Poole is a local agronomist and farmer to the west of town, and he's still stranded on his property. He says major flooding has severely damaged crops, which are the biggest earner for the region. Not that we wish for a drought, but in a way it hurts even more. There's been so much money invested in this crop and we're, we're at the 11th hour, hour, so to speak, just about to harvest it to cop this one. It, yeah, it's devastating. And then, and then when we look at the district, the damage to infrastructure... Uh, public and private is going to be tremendous and beyond imagination that I can come up with is, is what it's going to cost everybody. Mayor Mark Johnson says the floods will have serious and longer term consequences for the local economy. You know, after several years of drought, we needed this one and it's been taken from us. That's the financial hurt um, and obviously the stress that's going to cause not only the farmers, but we have lots of businesses that spin off from our agricultural sector. So it's going to be tough to get through this. There are mounting calls for financial support for farmers in New South Wales, with the state's peak farming body predicting the damage bill to the wheat crop alone could reach $150 million. Premier Dominic Perrottet was in Moree today to see the damage for himself. He says he's talking to the Commonwealth about financial support. This is a food bowl um, of Australia right here uh, in, in Moree. A billion dollars of agricultural produce. Uh, we know it's going to be a difficult time for many of agricultural producers. We will do whatever we can. We've already um, obviously been in discussions with the Commonwealth Government in providing that um, financial support uh, to help our primary producers get through. There's more rain forecasts for the days ahead. And communities like Maurice still need to face the risk of flooding through summer. Dr Nina Ritter is a research associate in the University of New South Wales Climate Change Research Centre. She told ABC News Radio the rare triple La Nina has left catchments saturated and unable to cope with more heavy rain. So we have um, full catchments, we have saturated soil, so every bit of rain that we're getting will basically stay on top and we will see uh, on top of the soil, so we will see that as the flood. And with the extreme rainfall that we've been seeing, it's really worrying. Dr Nina Ritter from the UNSW Climate Change Research Centre, John Daly reporting. 
On the New South Wales-Victoria border, authorities are hopeful the Murray River has now peaked at Echuca, reaching the highest flood level in more than half a century. While a makeshift levee has saved hundreds of homes from the deluge, many in outlying rural areas have been inundated and some residents say they feel abandoned. Gavin Coote has been meeting locals. Gavin, what's the Murray River doing and how are properties in the wider region faring? Rachel, the combined floodwaters from the Campaspe and the Goulburn Rivers, which flow into the Murray River at Echuca, have been causing havoc for more than a week now, but it's finally peaked there. That peak had been pushed fat back for days, uh, but now it's just at just short of the 95 metres that was forecast, which is still higher than the 1993 and even the 1975 floods that have been among the worst in the region's, his, region's history. And while the three-kilometre levee that was hastily built around Echuca last week is holding up and it's protecting many homes in town and it seems to be remaining structurally sound, there are homes on the outskirts of Echuca and also surrounding rural areas that have been inundated. And as the peak makes its way through Echuca now and downstream, much of the attention will turn to communities further down the Murray, like Tabumbury and Barham, and eventually Swan Hill, where major flooding is likely to exceed the 1993 levels there as well. And Gavin, there's a growing sense of frustration with the management of the flood. What are locals saying? These major flood levels are going to stick around for days, which means many of the homes around Echuca that have already been inundated will remain waterlogged for potentially up to a week. So some are very angry at the decision to build the levee, which was it's basically effectively trapped some homes inside the flood zone. So while it's protected so many uh, houses the other side, Within the riverside, many are underwater. The local council says it was not consulted about the design or the location of the levee. And now Victoria's Emergency Management Commissioner has weighed in and said the location was chosen to protect as, protect as many of the town's key assets as possible. Meanwhile, a bit further out of town, some residents say they've received little assistance as they battle to save their homes. Some of these areas would only take about 15 minutes to get to uh, from Echuca usually, but they so many roads are cut off or destroyed. And so there is a sense of, of being forgotten about out in those areas. I caught up with Matt and Peter who live in a rural area just upstream of Echuca and they've been using boats to get to neighbours' houses and helping pump water out of their homes. They've also had a campfire going at night time to just keep warm at the pumps because it's been getting quite cold. And while there have been police cars patrolling the area for looting, Matt and Peter say they haven't really received help from any other emergency crews. No one came out at all. No one's still been out to see us when I don't know how many houses are inundated and nearly flooded. So so there so. is a bit of a sense of abandonment then? Oh, big sense, just like their big wall down in town. I don't know how you can cut one side off to the other side, but... And how's your house looking at the oh, moment? We're, right. we're not wet inside, but we had a lot of water, and if we didn't pump it, it would have ended up going right up the street and flooding all the other side, so... You just went and you've been yeah, looking at other... Been, he's been out, so I check his pumps, so... And same at night, the neighbours go through so he can try and sleep, so... That, looking looking pretty desperate, that he's side of... bad, that side. Like, he's in the river. That is the river, as you can see by the fish swimming in his front yard, so... Yeah, there's a lot of dead ones there now. Yeah, they're all running out of oxygen, but... Anyway, yeah, it's disappointing. The whole street will tell you the same. It's, it's, I can't believe no-one came out and saw us. 
How much sleep have you had? Oh, I get a couple of hours a night, but I'll sleep one day. There's plenty of time for sleeping. We just need to make sure everyone's dry. No houses will get lost. I've seen a few floods, um, but this is by far the highest, but it's uh, also been the one that's been drawn out the most, and that's that's the hardest part is just... Uh, it's a bit like Chinese water torture, and uh, you don't really know what's going to happen, and the day keeps changing, and it's it's very stressful. It's been a pretty emotional time. We've had meltdowns, and it's been it's been tough. Etuka residents Matt and Peter there speaking to our reporter Gavin Coote. Well, a country in the grips of a cost-of-living crisis will soon have a Prime Minister who is wealthier than its king. Rishi Sunak has emerged the victor of the UK Conservative Party's leadership woes and he'll be sworn in as Prime Minister later today. Simon Tormey is Professor of Politics at the University of Bristol. We spoke earlier. Simon Tormey, what do ordinary people think about Rishi Sunak? Does his personal wealth make him out of touch with British people? Well, that's certainly the line that the Labour Party is going to be taking because uh, he is from a very wealthy background, uh, very middle class in origin. He's married a a millionaire's uh, daughter from India. He himself worked for Goldman Sachs. They've got houses sprinkled around all over the globe. I mean, this is a kind of a curious and rather plutocratic figure who's coming to power at the moment. And um, it's going to be very interesting to see how he connects with ordinary British voters. Apart from his wealth, he'll be Britain's first Prime Minister of colour. Is Britain ready for that? And is his race a factor for for anyone? Look, I think it is important symbolically. Um, We had our first female Prime Minister not so long ago, within a generation, if you like. Uh, We haven't had a person of colour uh, taking over the full um, office of Prime Minister. I think it's important for ethnic minorities symbolically to see that they're included in in day-to-day politics. So I think there is a, an important and, and resonant uh, advantage for Rishi here. Uh, how long it lasts, of course, is uh, open to speculation. But I, I think it's a, you know it does show Britain in a good light as a multicultural society and as a place where um, ethnic minorities, uh, people of colour, uh, can advance and, and take on the, the greatest offices of state. Can Rishi Sunak pick up the pieces from what's been a devastating period for the Conservative Party from here? Well, not only a devastating uh, moment for the Conservative Party, but also a very difficult time for the country more generally, Rachel. I mean, it it is very tough economically here. We've got inflation at 10%. uh, We've got uh, probably a a technical recession. uh, We've got very high mortgage rates, partly caused by Liz Truss's mishandling of the economy. Uh, We're coming into winter and uh, fuel payments have really kind of spiralled out of control in the last few months due to the Ukraine war. So it really is a very difficult situation to come in as prime minister. Um, But Rishi has got a a good track record as the previous chancellor of Exchequer under Boris. I think the markets uh, will like this appointment. They'll settle down. They'll give him a bit of a chance. And really what he needs to do is to sort of manage expectations, I think, from here. People expecting an economic miracle or a rapid turnaround of fortunes are, of course, going to be disappointed. There's a lot of work for him to do. He needs a strong team. Um, But I think the Conservatives uh, will hopefully now settle into uh, uh, an appreciation of of someone who's demonstrated strong economic and fiscal skills in the past. Do you think that the Conservative Party is able to be governed or are those factioned? From, From this distance, it seems as though those factions are so entrenched that there's really no common ground among them anymore. 
Well, as we know, um, because Australia shares the same system as the UK, um, you have these big tent political parties, the Liberal Party, Labour Party in Australia, and we've got, of course, the Conservatives and Labour. And because of that, a two-party system, uh, they are capacious and they do have a number of different currents and a number of different priorities and so on. So that's always been a feature of our politics. Um, whether um, the Conservative Party is ready to settle down, of course, only time will tell. But I think they do realise that with Sunak, they do have a good chance of re-establishing credibility, both with the markets and with the British electorate. Uh, I think the, the harping and the, uh, the backstabbing and so on will be parked for a few a few weeks, a few months. Um, they, do, they do see that they're in kind of last chance saloon now. So I think he's got a, a chance. But of course, if the economy continues to be difficult, if external events uh, play against Sunak, then of course, we might well be back into a kind of more a psychodrama of the kind that we've had for the last six months uh, all over again, but probably more likely a general election, because I think this is also the last chance for uh, a conservative figure to establish themselves without going back to the electorate. He'll be sworn in as Prime Minister in the coming hours. What does he need to say to the electorate? Can you write his first speech for me? Yeah, I think he, it's all about managing expectation. Uh, he knows that uh, Britain is in a, in a tough spot. He needs to calm nerves. He needs to get the markets on side. He needs also to establish his connection with the voters because he is from a very wealthy background uh, and people see him as this rather sort of glass-cut uh, figure. So he will need to say, I, I get it. I understand how tough things are for people. We will do the very best that we can to provide a stable economic base to get us through the winter uh, and to establish uh, the, the possibility for an upturn next year, control inflation, make sure public spending isn't getting out of control. Those kind of going to be the key messages, I think. Uh, and uh, we'll just have to see how difficult the economy becomes, because, as I said, it's really difficult in the UK and in Europe, um, probably Europe heading for recession as well. Um, but we've got, all got to hope that um, some of this sticks and that um, the UK comes through this difficult period. Simon Tormey, thanks very much for joining PM. You're very welcome, Rachel. Professor of Politics at the University of Bristol, Professor Simon Tormey. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Rachel Mealy. You can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night.